Hello, you are listening to DCD, a podcast dedicated to the discussion of constitutions and public participation in making them. It is produced by Democratic Constitutional Design, a research project located at the University of Iceland. Welcome to the DCD podcast. My name is Saivar Finborson, and today I have the privilege of speaking with uh, David Farrell, who is joining us via Skype from Dublin. David is a professor of politics and head of department at the University College in Dublin. Uh, he is also the project leader for the Irish Citizen Assembly and has been instrumental in all citizen assemblies that have been held in uh, Ireland over the last decade. And of course, David is a fountain of knowledge about anything relating to citizen assemblies. So I think we will uh, split this interview up into two segments. And uh, I wanted to ask you about the Irish uh, constitutional process. Um, and as you know, we have been uh, struggling with uh, changing our constitution here in Iceland for uh, well, about a decade now. Here in Iceland, we um, voted for a constitutional council in 2010. To make a long story short, we have not been able to change uh, any articles of the Icelandic constitutions and tuition, and now we are currently trying to uh, amend a few articles of the constitution. So uh, David Farrell uh, has been instrumental in the Irish Citizen Assembly and the Irish Constitutional Convention, which preceded it in 2010. Uh, so this, this is a very different approach to constitutional changes than what we saw in Iceland. So David, can you uh, say a few words about how it came about that you decided to go this way into changing your constitution? Yes, I mean, the starting point <clears throat> will be familiar to you. I mean, the economic crisis, the Great Recession, as we now call it, mm -hmm. that really began 2008, 2009, 2010. Uh, and I think there's a competition between Iceland and Ireland as to which of us was the worst affected. Uh, yes. But we, we were certainly very badly affected. So we had that existential crisis. The economy was on on its knees, the politicians were in retreat, there were angry citizens in the streets. Um, and so in that context, then, there were various groups mobilizing from about 2010, uh, promoting the idea of citizen-oriented processes. And in the mix were political scientists, myself and others, who were saying, you know, citizens' assemblies have worked in other places, why don't we have a citizens' assembly in Ireland? Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of pushback from senior politicians and media who said, look, things like that may work in Canada or wherever, but they would never work in our country mm. and citizens are too stupid. You can't do, use mm. them in a, and all these sort of familiar criticisms. Yes. So we decided to go and get our own funding. So we attracted very generous funding from an organization called Atlantic Philanthropies, which allowed us in the political science community to set up Ireland's first citizens' assembly in 2011, which was called We the Citizens. And it was a, a political science experiment. So the objective was to use political science to demonstrate that citizens could be trusted, that a thing like this could work in Ireland, 
and then to present our findings to the politicians. And that's exactly what we did. And we were fortunate that in the in the middle of this crisis, uh, our, our political leaders were receptive and they mm-hmm. decided to go ahead and set up the Constitutional Convention of 2012. Mm-hmm. So perhaps they were um, receptive because of the crisis, more or less, uh, because uh, this is something that probably wouldn't have uh, gotten uh, uh, any any sort of wind uh, t- in a normal political situation. That's that's correct. Whenever I am asked why we had it, I I always say there are th- at least three factors. Mm. One was a crisis. You should never mm-hmm. you should never waste a crisis. So we had the crisis. <laughs> yes. And the second was c- courageous political leaders. Mm. You know. The, the newly elected prime minister, it took some courage to go ahead and do this. <clears throat> it could have been a, a disaster, but it, it wasn't, as we might discuss. But it did take some courage. And frankly, the third was it needed a lot of effort on our part mm-hmm. to push them to do this. Mm-hmm. So we put a lot of work behind the scenes in, first of all, getting this onto the agenda of all the political parties in the 2011 general election. So the parties in all of their manifestos talked about citizen-oriented approaches uh-huh. and then we put a lot of effort after the election particularly with our we the citizens initiative in trying to educate the politicians about what deliberative democracy actually means in practice i'm, I'm sure that many people don't realize that at this time uh, 2010 this is actually when we icelanders were um, voting for our constitutional uh, assembly uh, citizen assemblies were not that well known uh, and there had actually not been so many uh, conducted in the world at that time so this must have been a, a huge struggle or, or, or at least a great effort and like you said the courageous of the politicians at the time this must have been a really <laughs> something that they saw as as an opportunity to redeem themselves almost i think you know we you know we were lucky that we had the recession i know that sounds stupid yeah we we were lucky that there was a general election in 2011 it was just mm-hmm. that's when it was going to happen and that's when it happened and and as a result we were lucky that there was a new government mm-hmm. uh, so when you put all those things together, then the the mood music was moving in the right direction to facilitate us. Mm-hmm. I mean, frankly, why why a citizens assembly and not some other approach? That, that there, the accident was in two thousand and three. I got an email from this Canadian friend of mine, uh, Ken Carty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I write a textbook on electoral systems, and he his email said, "Hey, David, you want to come to Vancouver?" For a week to talk to some citizens about electoral reform, uh-huh. and I, I had no idea what he was talking about, and that that was the British Columbia Citizens Assembly that was about to be established. I they used my textbook to investigate <laughs> the citizens' members, and I was an expert witness. And so, uh, the respected so, scholar of electoral systems and political parties, David Farrell, shows up at the Citizens' Assembly unwittingly. Unwittingly, exactly. Oh, yeah. and, then, you know, in quick succession, there was a citizens assembly in the Netherlands that mm-hmm. also discussed electoral systems. So they translated my book. And again, I went to that. And then in Ontario, the third of the three first citizens assemblies happened again, the same thing. They used my textbook. Again, I went there. So when our crisis happened in 2009, 2010, 
Uh-huh. I was able to speak with personal knowledge of the benefit of citizens' assemblies from personal experience. And mm-hmm. I think that might have helped a little bit in the sense that I knew a little bit about what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just an academic talking in abstract terms. Mm-hmm. I had actually witnessed one of these things. Uh, but then uh, the for first uh, constitutional convention actually took a strange twist. Uh, because it was not really um, a citizen assembly, but you had 66 randomly selected citizens and 33 politicians in the room. Yeah. Which is a, it's a very it's, surprising. Yeah. There's a, lot of of, there's a lot of accidents, mm-hmm. accident, uh, you know, serendipity about, about the Irish story. So, you know, in 2011, the new government that was formed um was a coming together of two political parties, Fine Gael and Labour. Mm-hmm. And in that general election that preceded the setting up of this government, the Fine Gael party, in their manifesto, said, we will have a citizens' assembly on electoral reform. They were listening to us and they put it into their manifesto. You know, they were going to do a British Columbia process. Mm-hmm. In the case of the Labour party, they said, we're going to set up a constitutional convention to have a, a complete overhaul of our constitution. Mm-hmm. That constitutional convention should consist of one third citizens, one third politicians and one third experts. Mm-hmm. So they, they compromised and they developed a program for government in which they said they would set up a constitutional convention. So meanwhile, we had just set up We the Citizens and we were anxious to try and get them to kick the politicians and the, and the experts out of the room. We, we want them to buy into the idea of a citizens assembly. Mm-hmm. So when we produced our report from the We the Citizens experiment and met with the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister, the leader, the leaders of the two parties, we were persuasive in explaining to them that experts should be treated as experts. That is, they shouldn't be members. They should be there to give witness, but they should be kept out. And they shouldn't be included as members. Mm-hmm. We were willing to accept that, and that was fine. So that one third was replaced by by mem- by citizens. But they insisted that the other third should remain, that they should be politicians. And, you know, honestly, most of us, all of us, I think, pretty much all of us, and certainly I felt that that was a big mistake and that this was going to be a car crash. It was just not going to work. Mm -hmm. Politicians would take over the process and the deliberation would would not operate properly. And I was wrong. We were all wrong. It worked, worked beautifully. That's very surprising. Uh, because you would expect a lot of power imbalance, uh, that, that the citizens would defer to the politicians, uh, given, you know, of course they will have superior knowledge to begin with on, about some of the issues, but also these are, you know, powerful people. So, so, but that, that was not the dynamic that you, um, witnessed. No, no. And, you know, it, it, it helped, I suppose, that it was a deliberative process. So, you know, they, everyone was in, a, was, in set a, was arranged in round tables. There were uh-huh. seven, seven or eight members to a table and each table had a trained facilitator. And the job of that facilitator was to make sure that everyone had equal voice. So if you had a politician trying to dominate the discussions, the facilitator would be there to say, no, you've spoken enough now. I need to hear from another member. Um, there were ground rules set down very coherently from the beginning that said there should be equal voice. 
everyone was referred to by their first name. So it didn't matter that we had uh, a government minister, we had the leader of one of the political parties, you know, we had some very senior politicians. It didn't matter. They were referred to by their first name like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And in fairness, the politicians themselves were conscious of the need not to dominate. So they themselves held themselves back. So referring again to the uh, catastrophe or the crisis, uh, it might have also played a role in in uh, in uh, making the politicians aware of the need to uh, commit to the process. I mean, uh, like I said before, to sort of redeem themselves, if you like. Yeah, I think it certainly, you know, was the main reason why this thing was set up. Mm -hmm. The interesting dynamic, though, in terms of what happens later is that, you know, we're now many months later because the thing started in 2012 and it went on till 2014, mm -hmm. the Constitutional Convention. And it was producing reports as it went along. Mm -hmm. But it's many months later before those reports get discussed in the Parliament. And time has moved on. The yeah. crisis is beginning to, you know, dissipate. It's beginning to reduce. Mm -hmm. uh, memories start to fade. So there's every risk that politicians will now sideline it or ignore it. Mm -hmm. And this is where the magic of having a third of the members as parliamentarians really kicked in. Because now when the reports came to parliament for discussion, mm -hmm. you had cheerleaders, you had ambassadors. Uh -huh. yeah. in parliament standing up, quite a few of them standing up and quite honestly saying words to the effect that they were cynical and critical of the process, but they they were, you know, willing to give it mm -hmm. a go and they had become converts and they could see the merits and that they stood over mm -hmm. the output of the process. So that really helped it. So uh, what actually happened to the proposals or, or, or the recommendations from the constitutional conventions? I mean, not all of them have been passed or ratified. Uh, no, and, and it's I can't give you a very clear answer, mm. not because I'm trying to be evasive, but, yeah. you know, it was given eight topics to discuss and it was given the possibility to consider other topics. So in the end, it considered 10 topics in total over, I think it was 14 months of meetings. Um, it produced... Uh, between 50 and 60 recommendations. The exact number is in itself difficult to to tell because some recommendations overlapped with others. Mm -hmm. So tracking the treatment of those recommendations is actually very difficult. What I can tell you com concretely mm -hmm. is that uh, a number of the recommendations require constitutional reform. Some don't. So mm -hmm. the constitutional convention was itself a misnomer. But so far, we have had three referendums. Two have been successful. Uh, there are at least three other referendums that have been promised, but we've just had an election and we're about to change government. So who knows? Uh, some of the other proposals didn't require a referendum and have been implemented. And others are still being discussed even today. Mm -hmm. So this constitutional convention is, is um, well, like you said, until 2014. So then it is followed by a real citizen assembly, uh, that is to say a citizen assembly where uh, sons the politicians, uh, which was held in um, Malahide, same place as the other one actually, but but still again, uh, why why not include the politicians since it worked? Yeah, it's it's often asked, it's an important question. 
And, and I think it all comes down to one word, and that is um, abortion. Uh-huh. And so the, you know, the motivation to set up this second Citizens' Assembly of 2016 to 2018 mm-hmm. was the primary motivation was just to discuss abortion. It was a, a condition uh, that was set down by um, an independent member of parliament if, who the government wanted to bring into the cabinet. They were trying to create a new government in 2016 after a difficult election. And she said, I will come into the, she was a former member of the Constitutional Convention. And she said, I will come into the government if you agree to set up a citizens assembly to discuss abortion. Mm-hmm. So it's okay, we will do that. So they set up the citizens assembly to discuss five topics, but the first topic was abortion. And because abortion was such a difficult subject, particularly for the mainstream parties, it would have been very difficult to get members of parliament from those parties to want to be involved because they did not, they would not want to be in public in those discussions. And the abortion issue uh, was a very, very difficult issue. I mean, not just uh, politically, but also for the citizen assembly. I mean, uh, I heard reports that you had actual protesters uh, outside the venue in Malahide, uh, protesting and, and almost accosting the uh, members. It was very difficult. Abortion, as you can imagine, in a country like ours, uh, was always going to be difficult. So, yes, there were protesters, a small number, admittedly, but they were there every every weekend. They were at the gates mm-hmm. and it included um, protesters holding up these huge, horrible, horrible photographs of fetuses mm-hmm. in various forms of, uh, you know, destruction. It was it was disgusting. And um, it also meant that on the final weekend, um, because there were concerns that the hotel might be stormed, mm-hmm. uh, police on hand uh, to provide security, in the end it wasn't. Um, so it was a very difficult topic. It was both fascinating and upsetting to observe. And I'm sure for the members, I've no doubt for the members, it was extremely upsetting, a lot of it. We, there were psychologists on hand to help members if they had difficulties mm-hmm. because they were they were as part of their evidence gathering hearing from experts and advocates seeing um, pictures in the room of fetuses to try and understand things like what a topic pregnancy might mean for example uh-huh. they they were hearing personal testimonies from women that were you know um it's given in private but they were nevertheless the voice of these women behind the screen uh, who had had abortions or women who had, had not had abortions. So, so it was trying to look at all the different dimensions of what the abortion agenda meant for women in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And so this was an extremely difficult. There were tears in the room. You know, it was it was not easy, but it worked and it worked extremely well. And that's one of the things that I, I don't think many people realize. Um, there you have you know, 100 uh, randomly selected citizens. And these are people who, who are basically given <laughs> a boarding and, and, and water. <laughs> you know, they're not paid parliamentary members. They, so, but they still show up and take part in, in a discussion about this, you know, almost traumati- traumatizing issue. Uh, weekend after weekend. Uh, that is pretty amazing, don't you think? It, it It is pretty amazing, but then these processes are pretty amazing. You know, it, it just speaks to the question of 
trusting the citizens, that citizens are not stupid. Mm. Uh, citizens are not disengaged. You know, all this talk about democratic uh, decline and democratic malaise is missing a fundamental point, which is that citizens are citizens. They understand mm. deep down, pretty much, I imagine, most citizens understand that being a citizen has benefits as well as, um, you know, Duties. objectives or, or costs that yeah. require of you sometimes to provide service. Mm. And once you come into the room, and I know you will have experienced experience like I have, you know, observing processes like this. I always say to people, you, you only really understand what these are like if you sit in the room and mm-hmm. see and hear the buzz of conversation. You know, if you're there on a on a Sunday afternoon when there's an important rugby match <laughs> and it's outside and the citizen members are still in that room, the curtains are closed to keep the sunshine out mm-hmm. and they're working their socks off. Mm-hmm. It's amazing, but it's not surprising. Well, uh, this is actually, there's one thing though, because uh, I understand that the abortion issue was the driver behind, you know, establishing the Second Citizen Assembly and and so it's, um, it's uh, natural that it would get quite some time, but, but it seems to me, I mean, I don't want to uh, make light of, of the issue of abortion and, and I know that it, in Ireland this is a very hot issue but another issue which was discussed was uh, whether and how Ireland could take, um, what was it, uh, become a leader in, in uh, tackling global climate change mm-hmm. and uh, well I'm curious as to, you know, what sort of proposals came out of that procedure and also uh, it seems to have only um, had about half of the time uh, that the abortion issue got and and tackling global climate change or, or climate change in general seems to be a much more complicated issue, technically speaking. Absolutely. I mean, I always say that there's Lots of things about the Irish processes that are far from perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what's instructive is that the, the next Citizens Assembly that has its first meeting this coming weekend is going to discuss one topic, gender equality. Mm-hmm. The members are going to receive some payment. Um, and it's going to have uh, five weekends, I think, from memory. I think it's five weekends or certainly more than certainly four or more mm-hmm. to discuss this one topic. So already we begin to see that the Irish government has learned lessons from the previous ones. Mm-hmm. So, so in this example, you've, you've referred to the climate, uh, the climate change one. Yeah, there was only enough time in terms of time and money for them to discuss this across two weekends, which means two months because mm-hmm. it's a, a weekend each month. So there's also reading and other things that go on in between. Uh-huh. Um, but having said that, it did produce a report. It made a number of well-considered recommendations, most notably on the need to increase carbon tax. Mm-hmm. Um, that report, in turn, was discussed by a by an all-party committee of the Parliament, uh, and it you know it discussed it. It didn't ignore it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that committee made a number of recommendations, many of which many of which matched the recommendations of the Citizens Assembly. And on the back of that, the Irish Parliament declared us a climate emergency and the Irish government um, uh, drew up a new, much more ambitious 
climate change program than they had done before, which they were in the process of implementing, but now we've had an election, so we can only hope that that continues. So that seems to also go against the uh, conventional wisdom uh, that if you allow the citizens to uh, participate in in policy making, uh, whether it be you know in something like a deliberative uh, uh, citizen assembly or or in a more direct way, uh, that they will be irresponsible. You know they will demand things such as lower taxes and uh, <laughs> all sorts of benefits that, without considering the costs involved. Um, so basically, it would it would be a free for all, but but that doesn't seem to have happened in this case. They actually made proposals that involved, um, you know, pr placing new taxes, like you described. Um, do you think that um, was this surprising to you? No, in short, it's not surprising at all because after all, this is the purpose behind a deliberative process that. Mm -hmm. You know, the deliberative process is more than just the random selection of the members. That's one important ingredient. But the mm -hmm. other crucial ingredient is facilitated, informed discussion. And the objective there is to make sure that the member, the citizen member, is brought up to speed on the complexities of the issue, mm -hmm. uh, is, is given enough knowledge to understand the different sides of the different arguments, and then is given the space to discuss with their peers, their fellow citizen members, uh, you know, their position on this. Mm -hmm. And so, no, I'm not surprised at all. I think you get from a deliberative process an informed um, outcome. Mm -hmm. But but yet again, I mean, like you say, I mean, these are the sort of two basic elements here. We have the deliberative element and, you know, this is of course, a highly structured debate. You have experts and moderators and uh, so on. So obviously that helps to guide and keep the <laughs> discussion civilized and so on. But you also have randomly selected um, citizens. So that means that you're going to get, you know, the CEO and the truck driver and you're going to get the uh, uh, you know, next door neighbor and, uh, you know, everyone in between, basically. So, you know, many, many people are very skeptical that these kinds, kinds of, of, of things will not be responsible. They will not take responsibility for, you know, economic hardships and so on that have to be considered. It's, you know, it, the thing about a deliberative process like this is that it produces a certain kind of chemistry in the room mm -hmm. and... You know, one of the reasons for that is because the members have been selected in a random process hmm. and the signal that they pick up is that they have been selected by their government to uh, be involved in an important discussion to give advice to their government about the topic they've been asked to consider. Hmm. So that produces a kind of reaction on the part of the member that they feel a degree of responsibility. They're not there to represent anyone else but themselves hmm. because it's the point of the process. But nevertheless, they know that they're one of the few who have been selected for this role. And then the facilitators are there to sort of keep this um, keep this in hand so that 
if there is an individual who is, you know, were there to be an individual who was trying to play games and uh, a certain kind of line of argument, well, the facilitator would be very quick to say to that individual, you know, you've made your point now, so now we need to hear from the next person. And unless you've got something better to say, you know, your point is, is understood. You, mm-hmm. So all of those sort of things tries to keep the show on the road. And as I said, you know, we know this from um, so much deli- um, uh, academic research that, that has been done over decades now. So it's it's experiments as well as these real world examples. We know that it works. It just mm-hmm. works. So, I mean, these are actually sort of two issues probably that I had in mind. Um, the one is this issue of responsibility uh, for policy, but then the other one is is a more epistemic uh, question um, that keeps, you know, crop, cropping up. And we've dealt with that somewhat in, in this talk already about how knowledgeable the citizens are. Um, Obviously, you deal with that by having experts in the room, which which can be um, can be, of course, very helpful. But but you don't think that, uh, or you don't see that uh, that coming up as a problem that citizens just uh, cannot really understand the issues or or do not have the requisite knowledge to deal with. Uh, some of these complicated issues, like, for example, climate change. I mean, like I said, I mean, some some part of of the um, of the participants must be participants. You know, given that this is a random reflective sample of of the nation that have not really thought anything about the issues and might not even have any sort of a view on it when they enter the debate. Yes. So, you know, a lot of this is us learning as we go along. I, mm. I can't from I can't suggest that we, we have this cracked, that we really know what is the, the perfect way to run a process like this and where the limits are. Mm-hmm. And I suppose one way to address the point you're getting at is I, I, I for a long time, I used to whenever I was asked the question, is there is there something that a citizens assembly shouldn't discuss? Mm-hmm. I used to give this answer that my Canadian friend, the guy who invited me over in 2003, Ken Carty, mm-hmm. used to give, which was, you wouldn't want to fly an airplane designed by a citizens' assembly. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's an interesting way to put it that, you know, there's an example, an airplane is such an, a complex uh, mm-hmm. thing to design. There's no way a citizens' assembly could design it. But I remember being up on the stage at an event in Edinburgh last year, mm-hmm. and I gave that answer. And the guy sitting next to me, Stephen Elster, no, it was Oliver Escobar, one, mm. one, a very big name in this field and who's been around much longer than me in this area of deliberative democracy. He, he interjected and he said, actually, David, I don't agree with you. Mm. He said, because Citizens Assembly wouldn't, in this instance, wouldn't be asked to design the plane. Mm. It would be asked a series of questions that help in the design of the plane, you know, uh, what sort of size of airplane or what is the purpose of the airplane in terms of is it long haul or short haul? Mm-hmm. But then even more fundamentally in terms of values, you know, to what extent do you want speed versus, uh, you know, carbon uh, impact? Mm-hmm. You know, so you might set a couple of design features that involve value laden questions mm-hmm. that lends itself to discussions by citizens assemblies. So if for argument's sake you were discussing an Icelandic constitution, mm-hmm. you wouldn't want 
the entire thing to be written by the Citizens' Assembly, but you might, as the people establishing it, as the politicians establishing it, you might say, here are six or seven or eight or whatever number of really important topics. Mm -hmm. Do we want uh, two houses of parliament? Do we want a certain kind of electoral system? Do we want um, some sort of regional representation? Do we want uh, what sort of uh, limitations on constitutional reform? You know what I mean? You break it up. Yes. Into just I, I think, uh, so just if I quote you, actually, back to you, you once, uh, I heard you call it once um, a constitutional gardening, uh, what you have been doing in Ireland, instead of just uh, a total uh, constitutional revision, which we <laughs> were engaged in here in Iceland. Yeah, I mean, um, I, that's that's correct. I was using the phrase, I can't remember which author I picked the original phrase mm. up, constitutional gardening. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I was just using it to sort of set the context for what was created in the case of the Constitutional Convention. After mm -hmm. all, I said they were asked to consider eight topics and then they added two more to it. Mm -hmm. So it was the decision of the government to set it up. It was the decision of the government to say that a third of its members should be parliamentarians. Mm -hmm. And it was it was the decision of the government as to what topics it was going to discuss. And so mm -hmm. it was quite different from what you had in Iceland, where it was the entire constitution. In, in the case of the Irish government, it was, look, here are eight mm -hmm. things that we think it should discuss. Interestingly, uh, actually, um, if I just might add, um, the constitutional... Um, the Constitutional Assembly, which then turned into a Constitutional Council, uh, we'll not go into that, but these were 25 individuals who were elected in, in a vote. We had like something like 526 people uh, running to participate in this, in this assembly. But it wasn't the intention of the government. I mean, this is established by the government, but they didn't intend for for the assembly to revise the whole constitution in the beginning. But what we had was uh, because we had people who were elected by the nation, they of course felt that they, you know, had to do certain things. You know, they had talked about various issues while you know they were running for office and. And uh, one thing leads to another, you know, when you look at the, this in hindsight, even though the government didn't exactly explicitly intended to revise the whole constitution, uh, that's, that was the outcome of the procedure. But that's something that you probably wouldn't uh, see from a citizen assembly because of this difference that you have a randomly selected uh, group of people, not elected people in the assembly. That's that's exactly right. I mean, based on what I understand from the Icelandic process, one of the big weaknesses in the model there was the uh, the election of the members, because if you run for office, you then feel that you have a mandate. You have, you, you, you know, you have been elected because you said you were going to do this. So you, you this is your mandate. And you go into the room with that sort of view in your mind. I am one of the 25. I have a mandate. And this culminates in the 25 taking charge. You get a very different chemical reaction if, mm. if instead you were selected in a random process, you won the lottery. But, and, but, but you might also expect some um, sort of uh, a political, uh, I don't know, I mean, a political situation where you have people bargaining, you know, all, all sort of 
you know give back on this issue if you uh, uh, like like some some horse trading or something <laughs> i mean there's a danger of of things like that happening when you have elected representatives uh, oh, i i should imagine yeah because that's that's how parliamentary parties formed classically you know it mm. was a bunch of individual legislators who clubbed together and agreed to uh, compromise in certain areas and that's from from that you see the emergence mm -hmm. of parties and um, so that's what you get and election the election dynamic produces that but the sortition dynamic produces a very different kind of outcome it is a sense of pride on the part of the members that they have been selected by their government to have this discussion on an important topic mm -hmm. um, I will I will ask you about this in in um, after after the break which I intend to take in a, in a few minutes I just wanted to ask you before we um, take the break uh, might it be a good idea to have an elected um, constitutional assembly if you intended this assembly to have uh, to, to write the constitution and have a power to submit it to a referendum without the um, parliament being involved. Would, would you then rather want elected members than randomly selected? But then, you're, for me, that's just a producing another version of, of a parliament. I mean, mm -hmm. my starting point, and I'm certainly not um, in a minority here, certainly among political scientists, mm -hmm. My starting point is our system of democracy is representative democracy. Mm -hmm. And these sort of things that we're discussing here are, I think, interesting examples of how democracies can innovate and how, how certain new entities might be added into the mix. But they're not there to replace. They're there to help mm -hmm. our system of representative democracy. Um, so I, I see a citizens assembly as, as just that. It's there to provide an advisory role to help the politicians take the difficult decisions they need to take. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think that's, um, that's a good place for a little break. Uh, we'll join you back in the second part of our discussion here on the DCD podcast. Thank you. You have been listening to DCD, a podcast dedicated to the discussion of constitutions and public participation in making them. This is produced by Democratic Constitutional Design, a research project located at the University of Iceland. Thanks for listening and we hope you're going to join us again in our next podcast.